0: We're here for part four of Barky Lungy 101. In this section, we're gonna talk about differential reinforcement procedures. So we're gonna talk about actually teaching the dog to do something other than their Barky Lungy stuff in the presence of other dogs. And so let's talk for just a second about what differential reinforcement is. At its bare bones, it is just as it sounds. It is reinforcing behaviors that are not the reactivity or aggressive behaviors that we are trying to get away from. And specifically, you know, there's a lot of different types. There's DRI, which is Differential Reinforcement of an Incompatible Behavior. So that would essentially be something that cannot happen at the same time as the problematic behavior. Um, so Patricia McConnell's Protocol Feisty FIDO, which has been around a long time, was a DRI procedure in which the dog learned to look at the human's face whenever they saw another dog. So that's just one example. There's DRA, which is Differential Reinforcement of an Alternative Behavior, um, which is, again, a specified behavior that might be difficult to do at the same time as aggressing, but is not technically incompatible. Um, And then DRO would be differential reinforcement of other behaviors, which essentially means you're reinforcing all the stuff that is not aggression. So you're kind of um, people, sometimes dog trainers talk about this as reinforcing the absence of the problem. That's not, that can't be totally true because you can't reinforce nothing. You can't reinforce an absence of, you're always reinforcing behaviors. So, and I think it's smart for us to pay attention to the fact that we are always reinforcing behaviors. Um, why a differential reinforcement procedure? So why do we need this on top of the remedial socialization and the desensitization that I talked about in the last couple of parts? Um, because... In my world, in the working dog and sport dog world, we have to put dogs in kind of unnatural, contrived situations with other dogs, and they need to know what to do in those situations. In my opinion, the differential reinforcement procedures are best for those types of situations. Um, In my work, and my life, they've fallen short in the more natural situations. So teaching my dog to stare at my face when they see another dog only works until you know, Joe Schmoe's Labradoodle charges straight up to us and is now in my dog's face. Is he supposed to just keep staring at my face during that? Um, is a question that I've always kind of had. And the answer is, of course not. He can't, right? So my dog will fail in those more natural situations that are going to happen. Whereas these contrived unnatural situations like an agility trial where I'm standing in a queue with a dog in front of me and a dog behind me and my dog needs to run soon, my dog can definitely know how to do something else other than aggress in that situation because the other dogs are not actually soliciting um, attention from them. They shouldn't be paying attention to my dog at all. And I train this to such a level that my dog can ignore another dog sniffing them in line um, to run agility because that's kind of where my focus is, is I always have to ask myself, what do I need this dog to do instead of the thing that he's doing? And then how can I help him understand how to do that? So remember always, you guys, that behavior is the result of experience and genetics kind of coming together. So behavior is, does not stand um, alone. It does not exist in a vacuum. And So all of these things do matter. So the experiences that the dog has had have resulted in his learning up to this point. And those things are, of course, always interacting with the biological existence of the dog. And so we shouldn't discount those things. But we also shouldn't overly concern ourselves with the genetics or say, oh, well, it's genetic, so therefore it's impossible to change. You know, none of those things are actually true. It is certainly much, you know, easier for my border collie to get into a crouch and stare as other dogs pass us on a trail than it is for him to have loose open body language. That's his genetics speaking. But that doesn't mean that he can't learn how to do something different. So we want to essentially rewrite our dog's history with these um, differential reinforcement procedures. We want to... Teach him that he can act a different way and that acting that different way is highly reinforcing. Understand that if the dog's got a five-year learning history of barking and lunging, and you can assume that the barking and lunging has been reinforced that entire time because if it were not, it would not have persisted. So whether you think you're reinforcing it or think you're not, it's not really up to you. The behavior is persisting. So by definition, it has a reinforcement history in place. So if it's been going on for the last five years, you now need to kind of weigh the scales back in your favor because the scale is heavily weighted towards that reactivity due to that learning history and that experience. And it's your job to start to tip the scale the other way by providing your dog with just ample opportunities to engage in more desirable behaviors and to have those behaviors reinforced. So we have to think, what do I specifically need the dog to do? So in order to engage in a differential reinforcement training procedure, we need to know exactly what we would like to reinforce differentially. So we need to say, you know, it's we have to go Further than saying, I do not want barking and lunging and snapping and snarling. I don't care what you don't want. Um, Well, I do care what you don't want. It's also what I don't want. Our goal is to get rid of that stuff. But we have to shift our mindset and say, but what specifically would be helpful for my dog to do in this situation instead? And what I have found, especially for our sport dogs, is that a static behavior like staring at the human's face is hard to maintain for long enough for those situations. Like when we're waiting ringside, for instance, or we're in a training class, that can be hard for those dogs to do for a long enough period of time. And again, if your goal was just to walk your dog down the street to you know, relieve himself because you live in a high rise, then staring at you every time he sees another dog may be functional. But for me and my purposes, it usually isn't. So usually I want more dynamic um, responses for my dog in in those situations. So what I like to do is to simply teach the dog to respond to simple cues in the presence of other dogs. So meaning that when there's another dog close by, this is one of those times when I'm gonna be giving you easy money for doing the stuff that I ask. So I may not do, you know, sit, cookie, down, cookie, spin, cookie, stand, cookie. I might ask for like a long behavior chain, um, or I'm sorry, behavior sequence in other times but when the dog is when another dog is present or close I want my dog to understand it's easy money time one behavior one cookie it's a high rate of reinforcement you're going to do what I ask you to do and I'm going to pay you for it once they trust that scenario we can definitely thin out the reinforcement depending on what our purposes require but in the beginning it needs to be I want the dog to see another dog's presence as cueing an easy money situation for them So I want the dog to seek me out. Have you ever been trying to do something else and your dog is pretty sure you've got food because maybe you've got food in your pocket um, or maybe you're trying to set up your training scenario and the dog is being obnoxious and they're pushing at you and they're saying, hey, I know you have the food. Hey, look at me. I'm sitting. I'm downing. I'm sitting pretty. Aren't I cute? That dog, that behavior, that's what I want the dog to become when they see another dog nearby in these situations. So... It's kind of one of those behaviors that we train accidentally well and don't train intentionally super well. So I'm going to give you kind of my different scenarios for how I carry this out. But generally speaking, understand that that's the dog I'm after. I want a dog that's pushing me to work because they see another dog nearby. And Again, I'm only going to utilize this in working spaces. Dogs really recognize the different spaces that they're in around other dogs. I don't want my dog to suddenly push me for work if they see another dog on a trail. And the reason I don't want that is because that's a dog that has not learned how to handle himself with a dog on a trail. And it can very easily poison this behavior that I've built if Joe Schmoe's Labradoodle rushes in and would also like cookies, right? So in those situations, that's where our desensitization and our remedial socialization are more important and more the route that I would take. And if we're not talking about sport dogs, I would spend the least amount of time on the procedures that I'm talking to you about today and the most amount of time on the desensitization and the remedial socialization. So, Understand that just, you know, different antecedents and different desired behaviors call for different training procedures. So that's why I'm giving you three training procedures in this podcast series. In this one, I'm going to give you um, three specific scenarios in which I practice these differential reinforcement techniques. And then you guys are going to take those and you're going to adjust them and just kind of figure out how this is gonna work better um, for you and your clients. For me, I utilize stationing. So I want the dog in question to be trained very well to want to seek out and get on a station. Um, I'm gonna throw a couple of brand names out even though I'm not being endorsed by anybody right now. Um, The Cato Outdoor Boards, that's C-A-T-O, really great portable sturdy station that i'm loving right now and then of course climb which is spelled with a k which is made by blue nine canine um is a wonderful tool as well so those are two really nice, easy, sturdy stations. You want it to be sturdy. If it is a kind of collapsed bed hammock sort of thing, it will not work as well for you. And I use those for my kind of downtime stations at agility class and things like that. But the more sturdy the station, the better um, for these differential reinforcement procedures that I'm gonna lay out. Also, I recommend highly that you do switch it up. Use as many different things as you can so the dog does not rely on their particular station to be good around other dogs because that's just not going to be sustainable for you. So I have been known to use a rock or a stump as well when I'm kind of out and about in the world or maybe a park bench. So I use anything. And this is why my friend was laughing at me when we were on a hike a few days ago because Felix... Every single stump he saw would get on it and sit at it, sit on it and look at me and go, is this is this one of the stumps? Are you going to pay me for this? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, it looks like I've had a strong reinforcement history building on that behavior for a while. So the first kind of game that I play and, you know, calling them games is you can call them that or you can call them a procedure, whatever makes you happy. The first one that I'm gonna do is I'm gonna call mutual stations. And that's the dog in question is on a station and there's another dog on a station. Now, if you don't have access to neutral dog, great. Use another reactive dog, doesn't matter. If you're using another reactive dog, you'll just stay far enough away from each other that nobody's going over threshold. And sometimes it's best to use another reactive dog because you're killing two birds with one stone. So if you see um, clients for these kinds of things, Don't feel like you have to use a neutral dog for every session. Teach the client what you need without another dog and then merge their sessions together so you're working with both of them at once and get an apprentice who can help you, who can work with the other person. Um, I think the days of apprenticing, unfortunately, are kind of dying because of the internet, but you learn so, so much hands-on working with another trainer. So use mutual stations. You're gonna start them as far away as they need to be. Parking lots can be really great for this. Um, Better than parks usually because they're usually, there won't be like a rogue dog running through the parking lot. So parking lots can be really great for this. So kind of scope out your big empty industrial type parking lots um, that you can utilize. Put your station, each station is going to be near the car that the person is working out of so that the dog hops out of the car, goes straight to the station and starts getting reinforced. What is the dog doing on the station? The dog is doing easy money behaviors. So they're doing, at first, they might just be clicked and treated for calm, attentive behavior. So the dog is sitting on the station looking at the person being clicked and treated for that then, when the dog is more and more comfortable, we're going to add other behaviors. So sit, down, spin, stand, nose target, easy behaviors that the dog can do on the station. Every single behavior needs to be paid. So remember, this is a easy money situation, which means the dogs need a high rate of reinforcement for what they're doing. The good news here is that your clients and you can pay close attention to the latency of these behaviors. So meaning if they say sit and the dog looks around and then sits, then we're bumping that threshold, we're pushing it, which we need to be doing, but we need to not make anything harder while that latency still exists, if that makes sense. So we're gonna ask for a behavior if we get a beautiful snappy immediate response to all of our behaviors, that's how we know the stations can get moved closer together. And you're gonna gradually build up um, the dog's ability to respond on a station near another dog. And you're gonna move those stations gradually closer and closer. How many different dogs you rotate through being on the other station kind of depends on how many dogs you have access to. But I would do as many varied dogs as you can and just take good notes so that you start where you left off and continue to push those distances closer and closer together. As you get closer and closer, use some extra safety measures. Basket muzzles can be wonderful, as as I've said many, many times. But you can also tether the dog. So maybe you tether the dog to the bumper of the car or something like that as you move the station closer and closer. So that if the dog decides to leave station, you don't only have the leash attached to the owner as your safeguard, right? So that that dog um, is kind of double tethered. The danger level is going to tell you how many safety measures you need to put in place. If these dogs have never caused an injury to another dog, um, especially maybe if they're actually just super friendly and they look barky lungy because of that, then you might need to take, you might need to not take all of those measures. But I've worked with a dog before where it was in a basket muzzle and the owner had a leash and I had a leash and it was also tethered. So that we had four barriers the dog had to get through to hurt the other dog we were working with because the dog, the dog's aggression was severe. So depending on your kind of level of concern about what would happen if the dog did get away from you and get to the other dog, you need to ask yourself in that scenario, how bad are things going to go? And then that's going to tell you how, how hard you need to make sure that that scenario does not occur. If you are using new, truly neutral dogs and you're not using another reactive dog for this, you've got to pay very, very close attention to their emotional state too. So if they are slow to respond to cues, they're uncomfortable. I would encourage you to not kind of employ your own dog and make them do this all day. I think it's really hard on them, really hard for their emotional health. I will use... Um, you know, one of my several dogs for this, if a friend needs help, um, but I rotate them through and I don't make them do it for longer than they look comfortable. And I just, I want them to also have those quick, snappy, easy money responses to my cues. And if they're not, they're uncomfortable and you need to continue to give them that space, even if the reactive dog has decided that, you know, he can have less space. So that's kind of the the first thing that I do is mutual stations. The next thing that I might do is what I'm going to call a fade in procedure. And I learned that term from Kay Lawrence, um, with stations. So that looks like fading in another dog passing by with, the reactive dog engaged in a station-to-station pattern. So what that means is the reactive dog is on the station, he's being clicked and treated for responding to cues. He then moves to his next station and continues to be clicked and treated for responding to cues. While he's engaged in that pattern, you're gonna slowly fade in the presence of another dog and that other dog is gonna continue to move. So this is how we get the dog comfortable with the fact that the other dog is not stationed. Um, I don't like to just have the reactive dog sitting on his one station while the other dog is moving around. That has a lot to do with just me feeling as though that dog um, is a little bit more kind of trapped or feeling like a sitting duck or something like that. I want that dog engaged in a movement pattern as well because it is comforting. So he's engaged in a movement pattern and then the neutral dog or the other reactive dog starts to get worked into the picture. They first are just gonna walk circles around or they might just walk up and back towards the station. And again, they're only coming as close as we can keep the reactive dog engaged in the pattern and engaged in the easy money cues, okay? Eventually, I want the... I'm calling it the neutral dog, but it could be another reactive dog as well. Um, The dog that's basically not being, not doing the station to station pattern, eventually is gonna walk between the two stations. And that's kind of our ultimate goal, is that we can have our reactive dog engaged in our station to station pattern, and we can have another dog move between the two stations, kind of severing that pattern in the reactive dog's mind. When the reactive dog can handle, and by can handle, I mean he is responding beautifully to cues. He's eating. Um, he's not, you know, glancing over at the other dog constantly. He's engaged in his task. When we can do that, we're going to have him go to his other station while this other dog is also passing through that space. Of course, your distances need to be kept smart here. You need to make sure that you're not going to have an altercation because the dogs got so close together. But the beautiful thing that starts to happen is the reactive dog can focus on going to his next station rather than focusing on the other dog that's moving through his space. And then, of course, you know, yeah, switch it up. Use the quote-unquote neutral dog <laughs> um, neutrally and then switch him out with the reactive dog and kind of do both. The dog that's being neutral, and that's in quotations, in this scenario, needs to be pretty advanced. So this is a very advanced procedure for that dog. It's a less advanced procedure for the dog that's going station to station. So you can kind of gauge where your clients are um, in their, in their process, deciding on who, you know, who goes where. It's a, also a great job for your apprentice to do to just walk that neutral dog um, around and through. If you are going to be handling a dog as a professional, if you are going to be handling a dog in any of these scenarios, then you need a timer set up. You guys train for one straight minute. You put dogs away. You reconvene. Then you come back out again. You can't be giving instruction to your client while you're working that dog. You can, but I don't recommend it. (laughs) Um, Instead, say, okay, and now we're gonna train for a one minute burst. When the timer goes off, we're gonna put dogs in the car and then we're gonna talk about what happened and then we're gonna adjust. That way you're not making adjustments on the fly because you will make a mistake if you do. You're also teaching your client in that way to plan their training sessions and know exactly what they're doing ahead of time so they don't get themselves into trouble. So the third kind of game or scenario that we might put the dogs in is I'm gonna call invisible stations. You're gonna do the exact two games, the mutual stations as well as the fade in procedure without stations. You gotta train your humans on this one because I do want the dog standing in one specific spot and then going to another specific spot if you're in the um, station to station pattern game. I want the dog staying in one area. So they are technically still stationed. The platform is just gone. You will see the behaviors kind of shift when the platform is gone. They may trust the scenario a little bit less. But quickly they'll go, oh, it's the same without my platform. And that's when you start to see a dog that can start to function a little bit better in the situations that we need them to function in from there, from those three games. And there's kind of that fourth game there, which is the dog acting as the dog that's being faded in. You could have, you can do that with your reactive dog kind of last. So... Once you've gone through all of these things, the dog is looking better on the trail, um, but specifically looking really good in these scenarios, you can start to put him in training class or competition types of scenarios in a in a controlled way. So you wanna be asking, you know, an agility instructor if you can pay for a spot in class, but just have the dog stationing ringside for tiny short bursts of time, one minute, three, thirty seconds, that kind of thing. Again, all safety measures need to be taken here. And you may also, you know, maybe you feel comfortable getting back into agility class, but just use your station while you're waiting so that the dog's learning history, again, is always having the pendulum swinging back towards where we want it, which is towards paying attention, seeing dogs as cues for easy money from the human and that sort of thing. So certainly... You would need to, from here, adjust your protocol for what you need. And that's kind of what I'm hinting at here. Utilize your station in the situations where the dog is going to need to pay attention to you and that sort of thing. If the dog is apt to leave work to attack another dog or chase down another dog, there's a couple of problems there. One of them is that the dog is not engaged enough in work to be asked to work around other dogs. So that needs to get solved separately. The dog needs to be doing its agility training or whatever it is in a space that is as void of other dogs as it can be until the dog is engaged enough in the work that he can ignore other things like that. And I could go on and on, but I'm not gonna give you a full uh, behavior modification protocol for that. But also the dog's Comfort level about other dogs is still not good enough, you guys. So do not skimp on the desensitization piece. I know it's not as fun. It doesn't... I know that these station games sound like the most fun part. They are the most fun part. The remedial socialization and the desensitization cannot be overlooked because that's where you're going to have a dog get in a situation potentially where he does not know that he can handle himself in a socially appropriate manner because he either doesn't know how to handle himself social in a socially appropriate manner because that remedial socialization is missing um, or because simply his responsiveness to other dogs is still too great and you need that desensitization piece to come in. So that's our final kind of procedural piece. The last podcast is going to be a collection of the Patreon questions about Barky Lungy behaviors, and we're going to dig into some nitty gritty there because I've had a preview of the questions and they're very, very interesting. Okay, and it's time for a few Patreon questions. This first one comes from Jan, who says, how do you teach a dog to chill out either in a crate or on a station if you shouldn't use treats to reinforce? I've heard you and I think Denise Fenzi discussed that if you're treating the dog in a crate, it thinks it is still working so it isn't going to relax. I have found that this is true of Luna as I've treated laying down, rolling on a hip, etc. Now if she wants reinforcement in the crate, she'll start throwing out behaviors. Laying down, rolling on one hip, not that hip, how about the other hip? Maybe you missed the first hip roll. Jan, this is a great question and a really, really common question. So I'm glad you asked it. and I will just plug for a second my Happy Crating program. I will post a kind of Cliff Notes video of Happy Crating in the Patreon page. Um, I teach it frequently as workshops and webinars um, throughout kind of all my platforms. I may be teaching it for a brand new conference um, coming up soon. But generally speaking, the reason Happy Crating was born is exactly this problem that you're talking about. I do not use food to teach dogs to relax in a crate. Um, I don't teach them, I don't use food to teach them to relax, period. I like for the dog to decide that a certain place is relaxing because that's what they have always felt when they're in that place. Happy creating goes into that in more detail, but essentially, no, I do not use food. And you have produced the problem that I talk about that Denise was also talking about, which is that the dog is trying to get you to feed them. So they're doing stuff. They're laying down, they're rolling on a hip, they're switching to the other hip. Um, your dog's not barking at you, it seems, which is nice. Uh, my dogs would. So generally speaking, You need to help the dog to understand that the crate is a place to relax and you don't put them there if it's not time to relax. So I don't use it as a um, kind of standby in between working area either. I use a station for that. So I only use the crate for sleeping chewing on a Kong, things like that. So hopefully that will help you out. I would teach the dog to stay on a station instead of in a crate if you need the dog to be in kind of an active standby position for you. And look out for the happy Creating video that I will post over on Patreon. Next one is from Paige who says, my 16 month old mixed breed suspect mostly border collie Kelpie and I started agility in January. She quickly figured out she loved it and started showing signs of a dog on its way to worked up. I've been interview I've been intervening with things like scatters and she's already showing lots of improvement. That's good. Uh, any advice specific to early intervention? How will I know when she's ready to trial? I'm planning to audit worked up in June. And then Paige went on to include some information about um, the good job she's doing regarding behavioral wellness for this dog. And then also mentioned that um, she has not created the dog under distractions because she hasn't wanted to push it too far. But the dog successfully created for about 15 minutes at a trial recently, and that is fantastic, Paige. So understand a couple of things. Number This is kind of... A very common email for me to get goes exactly like this. It's like, hey, I think my dog kind of has this problem, but we just started agility. How do I prevent the problem? And the answer is, if you already think the dog might have the problem, you're not in prevention land anymore. It's it's here. The problem is here. And the problem is that we kind of put dogs into arousal states that are not conducive to work. Um, in agility. We do it to them all the time. And sometimes it's really, really easy to do it to them. And when I mean arousal state, understand that I just mean that the dog is no longer capable of doing the things that you're asking him to do with a high level of fluency. It usually looks like, because you didn't tell me any of the behaviors that your dog is doing. You just said the dog loves it and is showing signs of a dog on its way to worked up. So what that sounds like to me is the dog is losing her ability to wait on the start line or wait her turn. Maybe she's sharking treats really hard. Maybe she's running away with the toy. Maybe she's barking at other dogs. I have no idea what this dog looks like from what you told me. So all I can say is that if the dog is not responding in the way that you expect or the way that you believe you have trained, you're putting the dog in a situation that she can't handle. We have to build up the dog's ability to cope in these environments rather than throwing them in the environment And trying to teach them new things in that environment. Um, Your dog is only 16 months. Dog is a baby. And you just started Agility not that long ago. So you're going to audit worked up in June. That is a good, good next step for you. Um, That's my worked up course on Fenzy Dog Sports Academy. And other than that, if the dog is telling you that she can't do what you're asking, understand that that can only be genuine. That is a genuine statement that she is making by her inability to do what you're asking her to do. And especially if the behaviors that she's doing are directed at you, like barking at you or jumping at you or biting at you, intervention needs to happen right now, which means there is no more agility until the dog can actually think and function in the agility environment itself. It's typically about frustration related to kind of lack of expected reinforcement when those behaviors occur. Because by and large, we get away with a lot of crap training and dog agility. I'm not saying you're a crap trainer. I am saying we get away with a lot of crap training. And the reason we do is because dogs are awesome and they like agility and they have a good time. Um, But we need to be smarter and we need to be better, especially when these dogs have really big feelings, which is all, you know, border collies, Kelpies, my God, huge feelings, big, big feelings. So yes, Audit worked up in June, but also... Really pay close attention. If you're needing to do a lot of food scatters and a lot of management of her mental state, then she's not capable of doing what you're asking her to do. And I really appreciate your question. It is one that a lot of people have. Christina's question is, How would you handle a dog, Jack Russell Terrier, that is super social and handleable and loves her crate, however, when aroused, will happily jump into her crate, but will attack the door as it is closed. The biting will transfer to the handler of the door... Um, if that, sorry, if the door isn't latched and pops open at that point, mostly hard mouthing, no punctures or bruising, bruising. You know, it's a surprisingly common behavior for dogs to attack, um, the hand that's closing the door. I could speculate as to why this is. I believe it's related to the fact that we teach them to wait in the crate by slamming the door in their face when they try to move, when they try to come out. That's, That's not me making that up, that's widespread. You put the dog in, you start to open the door, the dog starts to come out, you close the door. That's not how we teach it anymore, and the reason is all of my clients who I've worked through this behavior with. Classic frustration response of don't close that thing in my face. So you've got kind of a classic response trained there. Um, how would I handle it? I would handle it like any other behavior problem. I would say, what do I want the dog to do instead? And how am I going to teach the dog to do that instead? Go as simple as possible. Go with the behavior the dog already knows how to do. Like eat in the back of the crate. So go in, there's food in the back of the crate. I'm going to close the door and then I'm going to put more food in the back of the crate. You can give that a shot. Stay safe, wear gloves. Um, and you may need to, split this down and only close the door a little bit and then feed and then a little bit more and then feed so understand that if the behavior is happening the aggressive behavior towards the front of the crate then you have pushed the dog too far the dog isn't you basically can't train out of it if it's happening you have to produce situations in which it is not happening so that you can then reinforce that um that different behavior that the dog is doing so Just like any other behavior problem, I would make sure my behavioral wellness boxes are all checked. And then I would say, what do I want the dog to do instead? And how am I going to teach him to do it? And I would do it with high rates of positive reinforcement, um, particularly food. And then let's all think a little bit harder about closing the door on the dog when they're trying to head out of the crate, because that's going to work fine for you in 90% of cases. And then sometimes it's not. And I don't know about you, but this is not a problem that I want to work through. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDog Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash Radio to become a patron.